0: Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm.
1: Welcome to Bible worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, director of lifelong learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia.
2: And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and theologian-in-residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian.
1: Today we read Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, a complicated text whose beauty took both of us for surprise in the end. What does it mean, really, to be dead to sin? to be dead to the world as you have always known it, and live into a different reality? How do we do the work of retraining the habits of our bodies and our spirits to move towards alignment, towards allegiance to this newly discovered path? We have lots of ideas, surely none of them complete. Thanks for being with us. Hey, Bobby. It is good to see you.
2: Hey, Amy. It's good to see you, too. I have the most amazing story to tell you.
1: I'm so excited.
2: So I was at church the other day, and my friend, who used to be a regular Bible Worm listener, because she was in a congregation that was a narrative lectionary congregation, Mm -hmm. and then about, I don't know, maybe a year or two ago, she moved over to a Congregation that's not narrative lectionary. So she doesn't listen to the podcast mm-hmm, mm-hmm. regularly anymore. And so her son, who's like eight, was telling her that he misses the podcast. He's like, Mom, we gotta start listening to the Bible Word podcast in the car again because I love listening to Bobby and Amy talk about the Bible. <laughs> right? Aww. And so, yeah. And so so we've got an eight-year-old fan who loves to listen to the to the Bible Word podcast. But then she told me that one of the reasons he loves the podcast is because huh. He thinks that I'm the worm. Oh <laughs> he my thinks God. you're you're like talking to a little green. <laughs> I'm
1: talking to <laughs> like an worm. actual worm. Yeah. This is this is just a whole, <laughs> this is a whole new way to think about what it yeah. is we're doing here, Bobby. Yeah, yeah. Mm.
2: So I guess I mean, like I kind of sound like a worm. Like I can, I can see that. <laughs> uh
1: that I cannot top that story. That's a really good story. Yeah. It's a really good story.
2: Yeah. So, anyway.
1: So, I'm actually really thrilled to have the Bible worm himself here <laughs> yeah. to ask questions to. Yeah. I kind of want to get
2: like a little Bible worm outfit, you know, like a little costume that I can wear while we do the podcast, and I'll just inhabit.
1: I, I think, think that's, that's a really nice idea. I was um I was speak I was a guest speaker at a thing this past weekend, and they introduced me and they included that I would you know did this podcast with you, but they called it the Bible Worm Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and so I said afterwards, I was like, it's not Bible Worm. It's like Bible Worm, like bookworm. <laughs> it's not like a Bible and a worm. Yeah. Yeah. I actually said that before I started. It's
2: very important about. to me that there's not a space in Bible Worm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Sometimes people, and that W is capital. I don't know why I care as much about that one, but I do.
1: The things Well, I now, now we know that you are not only the worm, but you are the Bible worm because it's a compound word.
2: It is a compound word. It's yeah. true.
1: Oh, Bobby. <sighs> there's a lot of digging for us to do today. <laughs>
2: digging because we're worms.
1: We're <laughs> <laughs> Keep uh-huh. on digging. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. We are in Romans chapter six, yes, we are one through fourteen,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and you know before we hit record, Bobby was saying you know sometimes we read texts that are feel a little like challenging in in the sort of like Jewish Christian relationship kind of way, right? Like that that kind of challenging, and this one is is maybe not as much that as some other texts we've had, but just cha- challenging in the like. What you talking about? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: That kind of way. There's some very uh yeah, I just have a I have a I have a lot of questions, most of which uh boil down to that. Like what? What?
2: Yeah. Paul is a complex theological thinker. Yeah. And so I mean there are people who dedicate their whole whole careers to figuring out what Paul is saying, you know, in Romans 6 basically.
1: Oh, and, wow.
2: I mean maybe not Romans 6, but you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, trying to figure out what Paul is talking about. And so the one thing that's helpful there is there are varying understandings of what Paul is doing in Romans and in this chapter in particular. And so, you know, it's complex enough that nobody 100 percent like if if you could talk to Paul and say, what were you really trying to say there? Like some of the experts would be right and some of them would be wrong. And so like we make our way into a conversation and we do the best we can with it. And think about what's the like what's the connection to life today, and like mm. it'll be fine.
1: Yeah, it will open <laughs> it, it will open new doors for us. Which whatever, yeah. not all the doors, but it'll open some of the doors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was reading um, in my study Bible, which is the Jewish Annotated New Testament, just about like the forms of rhetoric that were common at this time, and that we might see in Paul. and And one of them is what they call diatribe, which is that you know you pose a question and and then answer the question but it's not always clear when the speaker is speaking in his own voice his right. own his or her own perspective is being reflected and when they are trying to express the view of someone else yes. that they're going to argue with yeah so if we already have complicated theological ideas and then we have a really a form of rhetoric that makes a lot more sense when you hear it sort of spoken or enacted acted right. out as opposed to reading it on the page, it is it is good and right that we are confused.
2: <laughs> yeah, this would be yeah. another time for your uh, for your puppet show idea. I this, do the I know. puppet show. I was and, like, just do the thinking voices. that we should have
1: practiced the puppet. So show, what are though. we
2: going to say? <laughs> should we continue sitting so grace
1: will multiply? <laughs> no,
2: that's a ridiculous idea. <laughs>
1: oh my gosh! Can we please do that? I'm going to just change voices at random times. Though. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so so that's one sort of piece of maybe context to to keep in our minds as we wade into this text. You know, we just were reading from the chapter before this, but is there anything else you'd like to offer as context we should keep in mind or background we should know or remember before we launch into our text for today?
2: So the text today starts with the question, so what then shall we say? And then, Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. so it's this diatribe thing that you're talking about. And it's responding to something that was developed in Romans chapter five, which we might have talked about some last week. Mm -hmm. The basic idea that Paul is working on is that when sin comes into the world, then you experience God's grace even more, right? So while we were yet sinners, he died for us. And so this idea that when there is sin, then you experience God's grace. And so sin abounds and grace superabounds is kind of the idea. And so then the logic that Paul's getting ready to raise is so then if we want to experience God's grace, maybe we should just sin a whole lot <laughs> and then like just sin so much that we get to experience God's grace all the time. So Paul has opened this really lovely idea that it, it is through the abundance of sin in the world that we experience the abundance of God's grace. And now he's got to kind of work out some of the implications of what that does and does not mean.
1: Yeah, you don't want to try to manipulate that by sinning. (laughs) Right, right, (laughs) right. Yeah. So that's where we're
2: headed. And I don't mean to over-anticipate where where we're going to go, but uh, this opening question is responding Mm -hmm. to a certain kind of idea. Mm -hmm. So that's what I
1: think. That's really helpful. The one other thing I would want to add as context, probably mostly for myself as a very new reader of this text— Um, is to remember that we are talking, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Bobby, to an audience mostly of Gentiles about what it means for them to follow Jesus, and especially vis-a-vis Jewish ritual law and whether there is any aspect of that that they— should or need to take upon themselves or not like that's another sort of live question in the background here
2: it is definitely in the background we hit that pretty straight on last week Mm -hmm. and but it's still like it's it hovers behind the whole letter and really all of paul's thinking in in general
1: yeah well um let's see what trouble we can get into shall we let's do it i hope that Grace will abound as we do. Okay, so I am reading from the NRSV, and I am picking up in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Okay, so you've already helped us with this first part here, the idea of, that we know, in fact, we should not continue in sin in order that grace may abound. Right. But then the, the text goes on to, in just in verse 2, uh, the idea that we died to sin. Yeah. Is this like, you know, people will say like, you're dead to me. Like, I I don't Mm. acknowledge you. I have no relationship to you. So like if you're dead to sin, you have no tie to sin anymore? That's a
2: really good way of thinking about it. Yeah, I hadn't really thought of that analogy, but I like that. Yeah, Paul, I mean, what Paul is doing is he's thinking of, you know, we talked about this last week. He's thinking about these sort of conflicting worlds, one that is under the sway of sin and death, the sort of cosmic powers in the world, one which is under the sway of God and life and grace. And, you know, those are sort of mapped on to like the empire and the kingdom of heaven. Although Paul doesn't hit that quite as squarely say, as, say, Matthew did. And so this idea, you know, is that human beings are naturally born into the, sin and the world of sin and death. That's the world we come into. That's the world we are taught to live in. That's the world that kind of controls us. And which is also one of the reasons that he's concerned about the Torah, actually, the Jewish purity law is because he thinks that sin and death even have learned how to manipulate good things like that so mm-hmm. that people who try to live out that way get twisted around in the ways that we were talking about last week. And so he's talking about once we have, well, we'll talk more about how we get there, I think, but once we are baptized into Christ Jesus as the language in verse three, then we no longer participate in that world. We can now move over to this other one I really love the way of talking about it it is like, sin is dead to me. It's, I, I am dead to sin. We have no relationship. N.T. Wright, in the commentary I was reading, talks about it like, you know, his thing was you used to live, like if you live in France, <laughs> mm. you're probably, like it's two, there are two places you could live. Uh, you could mm-hmm. live in the sin world and the death world, or you could live in the God world of the grace world. And if you live in France, you're probably going to speak French is how he talks about it. Like if you live in the world of sin, you're probably going to commit sins. Uh, If you move to another place, then you will start to speak a new language. And so uh, nothing against the French, by the way, used, Yeah, if you move to a different place, then you sp- you start to speak a different language. You start to live in a different kind of way. And so that's how he's kind of thinking about it. I used to live over there in death world. Now yeah. I live over here in grace world. Does any of that help?
1: It does, Bobby. And I, and I continue to be so grateful that you brought all of this into the lens of sort of, uh, you know, sort of the kingdom of earth and the kingdom of heaven, empire versus, you know, the vision that really is expounded throughout the the Hebrew Bible and also the New Testament. Because I just that feels at home I feel at home in yes. that. I understand that, like yes. in a deep way. And when it gets into this more sort of I don't know if cosmic is the right word, but like forces of sin and death and forces of grace and life, I lose my footing pretty quickly. So I have to keep hmm pushing myself back through the lens of like, no, Amy, you know, you can do this. (laughs) (laughs) You have to, you know, maybe like massage the language a little bit, but, but, you know, it it gives me a doorway into the kind of thing that Paul is talking about, even if the way he thinks about it is uh, not grounded in, in quite the same way.
2: Yeah. Like Paul does, he thinks about sin as like things that we do that we shouldn't do. And as things that we do not do that we should do. So there's a personal aspect of sin for Paul, but there is also always this kind of cosmic reality that when that's the world you live in, you just, that's what you do. And that there is another, there's a whole other possibility.
1: Yeah. Okay, I'm going to ask this question, but maybe we should hold it, but it's in my head now. So I'm going to, I'm okay. just going to speak it into the universe. Sure. Yeah. The way you were talking about it just now with like the France analogy, it makes it sound like once you have, you know, died to that other world and been born into this new world or you know, a new way of new culture, a new way of being, whatever, that there's no there's no sort of I don't know if risk is the right word, but that you don't have to be mindful that you can slip back into. Like, there's no, like, little little pieces of quote-unquote sin that can, like, weave their way back into your life. that yeah. you don't have to work at it. Yeah. You know, that it's just sort of, like, you emerge in a different state. And I appreciate the idea that you emerge in a different state. And I think there is something real in that. And also that you have to work at it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Do you think yeah. Paul thinks you still have to work at it?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I, that's a, such a good question. Like, there is a certain sort of... Hubris involved in thinking that we are no longer subject to sin. And that in itself very quickly becomes sinful, right? Because yeah, you start right. to like lord that over other people. What I, so if Paul really thought that, he would not have to say what he said in verse 6 1, right? right like, right. should we keep sinning? So, like, some,
1: right? Well, if that's your question, then. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. Like, some people are clearly trying to work the system here. I mean, Paul is difficult on this point. What I think Paul is doing is he is saying the world has been under the rule of sin and death. And that has been true since Adam up until now. And the world will someday be fully under the sway of the power of God and life and grace Mm -hmm. And that's where, that is the world we are headed to, the kingdom of God, the messianic age, however you want to talk about it. And we now live in an overlapping of those kingdoms.
0: Mm. Mm.
2: And so you, having been baptized in Christ, you no longer are beholden to live under the power of death. You have been invited in to live in the power of grace. But there is still like always a tension between the two. And it is possible to sort of switch your allegiance. It's um, it's not, mm-hmm. Paul is not a realized eschatology. Like we are not now mm-hmm. currently living in the kingdom of heaven fully realized, but it's also not a completely unrealized eschatology. Like it's not that it's only just yet still future, only just yet still, that was a whole lot of <laughs> qualifiers. <laughs> Um, so yeah, <laughs> it was a
1: lovely turn of phrase. Yeah. So
2: you've got some agency, and then and then grace covers like grace covers the backslips, right? Yeah. So the the backslips don't mean you have suddenly given your whole life back over to sin and death. Like God mm-hmm. still got you, mm-hmm. but there's a certain expectation that you have to constantly be working toward. That's what I that's what I think. That's what I think yeah. Paul
1: thinks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I think that, I think that makes sense. And then so the rest of you know this section where it, it it talks about being baptized specifically into Jesus's death. Yeah. And then you know focuses on, you know, we have been buried with him by yeah. baptism into death. Yeah. That is stark. And then that it goes is. on, you know. yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then it goes on, but I feel like it. It, it adds a real pointedness to the <laughs> that first part. Yeah. Do you think that's as a as a way to um I don't know, like mark the how profound it is to cut yourself off from this other stream of existence that you've always been in? Yeah. Like it 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 is it is sort of like a death.
2: Yeah. Now, I'm glad you draw, draw out that starkness of that image because it's important. And oftentimes, like in my tradition, we baptize babies, which is theologically, I think, a good thing. But sometimes baptism becomes like cute, you know, yeah. like sprinkle, sprinkle, ha ha, the baby cried or whatever. Yeah. And baptism is not that in Paul's writing. It's not
1: baptism cute. Baptism is death. <laughs> it's
2: not It's not even a little bit cute. Yeah. My professor at Columbia Seminary when I was there um, many years ago now, Stan Saunders, he baptized his son, I think it was, at the Open Door Community, which is a basically a Catholic worker house, but Presbyterian. Mm-hmm. And so it was, you know, people on the street and people working with people on the street. Anyway, his baptism sermon, the title was The Death of a Child and mm. that's what he was talking about was in this moment that the child is dying to the world into which he was born and then being recreated to live in a whole other realm which is overlapping but is different and just that that title is like mm. hits you hard
1: it does
2: and baptism is meant to hit you hard in that way
1: mm. Okay. This is probably an impossible question, but is there like an imagining or a hope within this world of theology that, I mean, that seems so crazy. Like, why is that the system that you're born and then must immediately die to what you were born into in order to be born into this other thing? Like, why can't we just skip that first step and just be born into the other thing?
2: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, (laughs) this is the question of being human, right? Um, Yeah. The whole theology of, you know, the world being controlled by sin and death is simply trying to explain, I think, why people can be so awful to each other. Yeah. Like, why do we live in a world in which there is violence and, you know, all of these things that we read in the news? And the explanation in this tradition is because God, sin and death made their way into the world through human frailty and this mm-hmm. points for Paul back to the Genesis 2 story, Genesis 2, 3, yeah. in which Adam and Eve are disobedient. Now, the push that question off and say, well, why did God allow that? Why did God? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could right. God okay. have okay. not we had could, a tree knowledge? Yeah, we'll of never knowledge.
1: finish our text. Yeah. Uh-huh. But
2: uh, for me, it's a, the sort of the post ex post facto explanation. Like, instead of saying, like, why did God make the world that way? The question is, yeah. why is the world like it is? Yes. The only way to explain it is that human beings live under the forces of things that they that do not have their best interests at heart and i always want to talk about this then as a systemic sin systemic evil yeah. systemic oppression but that's the world that we're born into that's yeah. the world that's given to us by the empire yeah. and so you have to make a conscious choice to live you
1: have to right you have to actively choose to give that up and take on something different
2: yeah that's exactly right now, in Paul's thinking then, so that the baptism is a death and rebirth, but it's not just that. It's death together with Jesus so we can be raised from the dead together with Jesus.
1: Yeah, I don't know what that means.
2: So in Paul's understanding, it would not have been possible for anyone mm-hmm. to die to the power of sin and death and be raised anew in God's uh, grace. Mm -hmm. until Jesus first was put to death by the world, Mm -hmm. power of sin and death, and then resurrected into Mm -hmm. new life in God's grace. So like that door was closed to us for Paul and it was guarded by sin and death. And Jesus, when he died and was resurrected, he defeated the power of sin and death and said, you no longer can hold humanity captive in the way you did before. And so now there's like a breach in the, the line, mm-hmm, the, you know, mm-hmm, uh, of mm-hmm. sin and death. And so people can kind of sneak through, but we can't do it on our own. We can only do it for Paul because Christ sort of opened that door or God in resurrecting Jesus opened that door.
1: Okay. So I'm rewatching stranger things with my daughter. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, <laughs> and we're just back in season one now. And, and it, it is, you know, making, making me think of like the, the enormous yes. force yeah. that it takes yeah. to sort of create a portal between these yes. like parallel worlds. Yes. And so that really is sort of, that imagery is really resonating for me yes. as you're as you're speaking. That this, like the, the example of Jesus's life is extreme in that certainly for some people, the world of sin, the empire will actually kill you. Thank God for most of us it doesn't actually hang us up. It doesn't actually execute us, right? Yes. So that that's like kind of an extreme form. And then for Jesus to actually be resurrected in body is a more extreme form than what we're going <laughs> to experience probably in the next, you know, 6 months at least. But that it's like that the enormity of that, the enormity of that happening in the world opens opened something that wasn't there before.
2: Yeah. No, that's such a helpful, it's like in the Garden of Eden story, the mind flayer <laughs> came into the world somehow through that little apple mm-hmm. and, which is actually probably a mango, I think. Mango? Yeah, I thought it was yeah. a fairy. Anyway, and, and created a portal into the upside yeah. down. And so human yeah. beings live in the upside down. That's yeah. like, it is not the world it was created to be. It was the world sort of twisted by, yeah, the power of evil. And then the, the enormity of the task of recreating. I love that image. And Jesus's resurrection mm-hmm. is the thing that has the energy to make that mm-hmm. happen. But but it's, it's hard to slip back through there.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Hi, everyone. It's Bobby here from Bible Worm. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. Amy and I started Bible Worm a couple of years ago because we wanted to create a space where we could talk deeply about the Bible in ways that bring together our academic backgrounds in biblical studies and our deep engagement with communities and people of faith. We decided to make this resource free because we want everyone to have access to sound biblical scholarship that connects biblical faith to everyday life. We hope you're finding the podcast fits that need. That said, while the podcast is free, making it is not. Amy and I and the rest of Team Bibleworms spend a lot of time and energy studying, recording, and editing the podcast to make it freely available to the public. If you enjoyed the podcast and if you find yourself in a position to support our work, we hope that you will consider becoming a Bibleworm supporter for as little as $4 per month. For a bit more, you can also get early access to episodes, weekly liturgies, video Bible studies, join a monthly discussion group, and more. We realize not everyone is in a position to support the podcast. And if you appreciate our work and want to support us, we hope you'll check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash BibleWormPodcast for more details. Thanks so much for listening, and now back to this week's
1: podcast. Okay, so I am going to pick up in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: This all already makes so much more sense than when I read it on my own, Bobby. <laughs> uh,
2: sure, yeah. <laughs> Trying to read Paul as like somebody who's not really thought through Pauline thought is like that's really hard.
1: Yeah, but I want to. I'm looking at these questions that I wrote out before, and I wanna, I wanna ask them. I wanna ask them anyway. Sure. So the first thing I wrote was that I, <laughs> I'm not sure how I feel about pressing our own metaphorical death this mm. far, oh, and wondering whether it, whether it sort, <laughs> what I wrote was wondering whether it like cheapens the actual death that has occurred, mm. which is Jesus's. Mm. I'm not sure how I feel about that question. Now it feels like a, and then again, like I still, I get a little turned around and had to think about Jesus's death because it is an actual death. And then it also is followed by resurrection. So, so I don't know. Do you have any concern about that? The use of, of, of metaphorical death for like someone who is dead, but is just sitting comfortably in their armchair and then (laughs) dies and comes back to life.
2: That's such an interesting question. And I, one of, the, one of the things I said to you before we started talking today was that you always, I never can anticipate the kinds of questions you're going <laughs> to throw at me that I've never thought about before. But, I mean, I see your point for sure, that, like, Jesus has died a horrible and gruesome death. He has also been resurrected. And so one of the things that Paul is trying to think about is, like, what was the purpose of that death? Yeah. One of the things that's interesting, I think, like, in verse 11 – Paul says in the CEB anyway, you also should consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive for God in Christ Jesus. So he's acknowledging that there is a real death, that Jesus has died. And there is a not quite real death Mm -hmm. that the believer should consider themselves to have died. Mm -hmm. But in fact, they have not exactly. Mm -hmm. And so... Paul, I think, is anticipating that you and I will also die real deaths. But in the meantime, we're sort of inhabiting this kind of metaphorical death. Yeah. I don't know if it cheap. Like, Paul certainly does not mean to cheapen it. Whether it actually cheapens it or not, I think that's an interesting question.
1: I mean, maybe the real question is, what is it that is so important about the metaphor of death? Like, you know, I started writing this little list of what are, what are the markers of life that would be absent? Like, what does it actually look like to yeah. say, you know, like, okay, I didn't literally die, fine. But, like, that you cease to care about what you cared about. Like, what are, what are other things that happen when you die besides your heart stops beating? Like, you, what, I don't know. I guess I just, I'm fascinated by the, by the importance of this metaphor yeah. here and, yeah. and trying to pull out pull out all the, all the levels of it.
2: Yeah. I mean, so if you come back again to this idea of dying to the power of sin and death, which we can talk about as dying to the power of systemic evil, which we can talk about as dying to the power of the empire, which has shaped the world that you live in.
1: Yeah.
2: Then when the question is like, what does dying to that mean? It really means giving up your life you really start mm-hmm. to work that out like you yeah. you can no longer go to the places that you went yes you might not be able to interact with the people you used to interact with you might not be able to participate in the economy fully the way that you once participated in yeah. the economy you might have to yeah. give up your job you might have to yes you
1: know, all the trap yes all the trappings of life in those sort of social systems
2: would fall and there. so that sense of death like one of the like I have I have not um, experienced addiction in the sort of technical sense. Mm-hmm. I am a, I have my own sort of metaphorical addictions, but people in my community at Canvas Community, many of them have recovered from addiction, live with addictions, and that's one of the things they talk about quite often. Is that old world, those people, mm. those places, they're. I can no longer go there. They are dead to me,
0: mm.
2: and that—that's really helpful. Mm, so you can't sort of you can't sort of walk in and out of it. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. And so if we think of ourselves, this is the way that I am an addict is um, being addicted to the things that are offered to me by the culture of sin and death. Right? Mm-hmm. Is like the privilege that I have in these sort of systems. Like it's hard to walk away from those. And so the metaphor of death in that way, I think is really useful because it's saying like, you can't just sort of dip in and out. Yeah. Truly, well, and truly those connections are are severed, or at least they should be.
1: Yeah. That's really helpful. And I think one other layer that I think will be drawn out a little bit more later on in our reading, but I was thinking about, you know, our, our relationship to our bodies and the way we inhabit our bodies and prioritize the comfort of our bodies. Yeah. That- uh, but I think Paul is asking us to to change the way we relate to our bodies. Um, yeah.
2: While we're talking about all this, the death stuff, which I think is super mm-hmm. important here, <laughs> like there is also like back in verse four, you've been raised from the dead so you can walk in the newness of life. Or here at, in verse 11, you should consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive for God in Christ Jesus. Yeah. So this breaking and dying and separating is part of the picture. But the newness of life, the renewed existence, the new community, the new possibility, like there is a whole world on offer here, Mm -hmm. which was not available to you before, but is available to you now. And it may not look like the world that you came from. And so you might actually experience it as a loss, Mm But once you sort of embrace it in this way that you and I have been talking about for three or four years now about like, what is the kingdom of heaven actually like and community and relying on other people and trusting in God from day to day and, you know, all of these kinds of things that are really hard, but actually are real gifts. Paul is also drawing our attention. There is a real life here. And in Paul's understanding, it's a better life, even when it's not yet the fully realized kingdom of heaven. The life you can live here and now by letting sin pass away, saying, let that world be dead to you, is a real, beautiful, renewing existence.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Bobby, this might seem strange, but when you were talking, it, it made me think, it, coming at this from a very different theological angle, but like the same kind of work that in some ways The book of Kohelet is asking us to do, which is to give up the systems of meaning that we have bought into our whole lives. And that is extraordinarily painful. And so some people, when they read Kohelet, they're just like, this is the most depressing book I've ever read in my life. Yes. Because Kohelet will not let you look away from the things you have to give up. But- the reason to give them up is because it opens up this whole other world of possibility that is a more real and grounded and yes. ultimately joyful existence. Yes. Yeah, but but first you have to first you have to give up the old stuff.
2: I really love that, Amy. I'd not connected Paul to Ecclesiastes. In before. some ways,
1: it's a very it's a very odd fit because because Kohelet is preci- Ecclesiastes is precisely saying. The thing is that you are going to die, and, yeah. and and that's not you know Paul's message, but but I think doing the work of letting go of the yes. world's systems of meaning is is shared work that they're both asking us to do.
2: I think that is exactly right. I really really love that.
1: What do you what do you make? Well, I sense a transition here, at, when we get to verse nine. And it says, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: um, I don't know. Like, it feels like a different different central message than what, what we've been working on before. Can you talk through that a little bit? Okay. I'll tell you just that this is probably a little bit crass, but the way that it sort of read to me was, if you can endure, you know, once once Jesus has endured this death, it's sort of like you only have to do that once. Yeah. You know, like there is a sort of for all the I know I've been a little death focused in this, but 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 for all for all of that, like ultimately what you're doing is is making the end of your lifespan on earth <laughs> less scary
0: mm-hmm.
1: by sort of switching your uh Allegiance is a is a weird word to put here switching your your worldview, switching your orientation now this okay this I'll just say it this <laughs> this statement to me reads like it is about a fear of death and this is a way to not be afraid of death.
2: Yeah. I actually really like the word allegiance there that you used because like the question of like like when we've been struggling with like how do you interpret translate the word, Faithfulness or faith, allegiance is actually an interesting way to think about it. Do you give your allegiance to God or do you give your allegiance to sin and death or to the empire? I definitely see what you're saying about this as a way of alleviating death anxiety. I I think the New Testament is not actually nervous about that, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's not quite so strong in Paul, although he does say it sometimes, but it is front and center in the book of Revelation, which is to say, Look, the worst thing that the empire can do to you is kill you. And that's not really that big a deal in the big scheme. Yeah. Because there's life after death. And so you should not be afraid of death. Now, one can read that in sort of a crutchy way, which I think is a legitimate way of reading it. One can also read it in kind of an emboldening way. Remember Paul had said, I am not ashamed of the gospel a Mm -hmm. couple of weeks ago. And like one way of reading that is you might be a little shy about the gospel if you thought it was going to get you killed because it got Jesus killed. Yeah. And so now this message is you don't have to be worried about that. You don't have to hold it close or keep it quiet because death has no real power. The other thing that I'm reading right here is this question you were talking about before. Like this is Paul acknowledging that Jesus has actually died a death,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and that the reader, that the believer, mm-hmm. has not. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus is actually dead and resurrected, and therefore beyond the power of sin and death, which can no longer touch him. The believer oh, is because not he has that. died, right? Uh-huh. The believer has not actually died. Mm -hmm. The believer has metaphorically died, as you Mm -hmm. were saying. They have participated Mm -hmm. in Jesus's death through baptism. So in verse 11, you should consider yourselves dead to sin is a way of saying you're not actually dead to sin. So live as though you are, even Mm -hmm. though you're not. That's the backsliding issue that you were talking about, right? There's like a constant I have every day wake up and say, I'm going to live my life as though I am dead to sin, even though I still live in the world in which sin has power.
1: So is this the sort of uh, fruition? That's a weird word to use. The sort of culmination of this only happens after a Christ follower actually dies? Yes. Wow. I would
2: would actually press that further, which is to say at the general resurrection with the return of the Messiah— When the Messiah comes and the dead are resurrected, which Paul thought was going to happen quite quickly, then God's kingdom comes fully and then sin and death no longer have any power. So we, the reader of Romans, the believer, will eventually get to the state where Jesus is now, which is that sin and death Mm
1: -hmm. have no power over him. Mm -hmm.
2: But we are not there.
1: We're not there, but we try to live as though we're there. Yes. In the meantime. I mean, it's a
2: little bit like I would not thought about this addiction metaphor, but it's kind of the same. Like you wake up every day and you say, I'm not going to live in my addictions today. Yeah. And then you live a day that way. And then you wake up the next day and you do it again. Yeah. yeah. And so we still have the addiction to sin. We still have the addiction to the power of death. But we consciously choose every day to live a different way.
0: Mm. And then
2: we trust that eventually for Paul, we trust that eventually we're not going to have to wake up and make that choice every day because at the final resurrection, at the return of the Messiah, sin and death, addiction, is ultimately defeated. And so then we live in true freedom. But in the meantime, we live in a a freedom we make by choice every moment of every day.
1: You just made Christian funerals make so much more sense to me, Bobby.
2: Oh, can you say (laughs) more about that?
1: No, I just... I don't think I have understood – I don't think I had understood the sort of trajectory of a Christian life as, as having sort of stages in that way before. Mm. And that as as Christians see their life sort of, you know, parallel, paralleling the life of Jesus in some ways, like phase one is you're here in your body on earth and you have this example – of Jesus in whose image you, you know, set your sights. But then as you continue to go through your life cycle and your death, like you sort of are, are moving along further in that, uh, in that path. Like it's not like, uh, it's not like a relay race where Jesus ran the race and then you get to pick up at the end where Jesus mm. ended, you know? I think that's mm-hmm. sort of how I had pictured it
2: before. Mm. There's kind of a, I don't know about relay race. I like that image. (laughs) I loved relay races. There's so many things you get to do as a kid that you don't get to do very much as an adult. I guess I could go get a group of people and run a relay race.
1: You have young kids. You can do all the things again.
2: Man, my kid had me at the playground trying to do the monkey
1: bars the other day. Like, they are, <laughs> the are so hard. Like, I almost dude, ripped my arms out of my sockets. Oh, my goodness. when my kids were young. Mm-hmm. I used to do that no problem. Then I was like, oh, that, you actually have to have muscles to do that. <laughs> and apparently I don't. Or anymore. else not very much body weight. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah. Those are two things.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: Uh, So one thing that's. So one way in which Christians do kind of pick up where Jesus left off is in this issue of justification. So like Mm
0: -hmm.
2: what Paul is thinking is once you have come to have faith in Jesus, or once Jesus has had faith in you, whichever way you want to read that, then if you, if you wake up this morning and you slip back into the power of sin, Mm -hmm. God's grace covers that, Mm that the the Mm -hmm. stakes are low. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Your, your sort of immortal soul is not, at risk. Yeah. Whereas previously Paul would have thought the sin of the power of sin and death is the ultimate power to which you have given your allegiance. Yeah. Now, once you have sort of believed in Jesus, once you've been baptized, when you mess up, when you don't actually live every day, the way you mean to God's grace covers you.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But there is this process, as you're saying of constantly trying every day to live into the life that has been given to you and doing that more and more. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Consider yourselves dead to sin. Live as though you're in a new life, even though we're still in this middle ground.
1: You know, it remi- what you're saying reminds me of, um, I'm in a lot of weird Facebook groups and I don't even remember, a lot of weird Jewish Facebook groups and where people can pose questions and other people answer their questions and I think this one was like a a group where non-Jews post questions to Jews or something like that. And so the question was, what if you mess up on Shabbat? Like there are a lot of things you're supposed to not do on Shabbat that are just habitual. Like what if you flick on the light switch? You were not supposed to do that. Like what do you do? Yeah. And the answer is like, you say, oops, and don't do that. (laughs) And and try not to do it again. Like, and, And a lot of people were like, we mess up all the time. Like yeah. you try to put things in place like maybe you put a piece of tape over the light switch next time so you don't do it but like of course we make mistakes all the time and yeah. then we try not to do them again and that's guess what we're humans and we're a disaster like yeah. we, you know like that's that's kind of the only way to be that what you're saying about grace covering you I wonder how how that you might choose to not answer this question but how that fits with that the other the quote unquote fire and brimstone like uh, theologies that lurk around in the, in the new Testament. Is that worth addressing on one foot here? Or do you want to just put that aside?
2: I mean, there's a lot one can say there. We, t- we talked about this a little bit as we were talking about Matthew, because Matthew really does have a kind of a sense of like, there's a certain kind of way you're supposed to live. And if you don't do it, it's not going to go well for you at the mm-hmm. final judgment. Right.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so we have the Sermon on the Mount and we have the like least of these and all of those things. One of the things I kept coming back to in our discussion of Matthew was Matthew also has that idea that God judges us in the way that we judge others. And mm-hmm. so God wants to be graceful to us. Like that's God's first move. And it's only when we refuse grace to others that God says, I don't know, I'm going to have to, if you can't forgive that, Whatever it was, $100,000 debt, when I forgave yeah. you a $7.5 billion debt, <laughs> then I don't, I'm gonna have to hold your debt against you. But God's first move is, I'm mm-hmm. gonna forgive your enormous debt, and you forgive that next person's enormous debt, and like it's all fine. Mm-hmm. So there's grace in that system. And then the question that you're posing, which is an important one, is, are there limits to God's grace once you have sort of tried to accept Jesus and be baptized? To which my answer is no. Mm-hmm. but there are many answers to that there question. There are
1: many answers to that question. Yeah,
2: I get you. Also, talking about light switches, like the power goes off at my house every once in a while. Like we had a tree fall in our yard and it knocked on the power line. The number of times I turned on the lights or tried to use the microwave, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. just like, oh yeah, the power's out. And then like two minutes later, I'm flicking the same light switch again. Like just- I mean,
1: it's actually a really good and interesting metaphor for what it looks like to... To completely change that your the, your mindset of what of how you're living, wow. like it's a silly example in some ways because I don't yeah. think that the microwave is the world of sin, but <laughs> but some of it are these sort of things that feel big and profound, and some of it are like yeah. these daily like almost habits of the body. You walk into yeah. a room and flick on the light, like oh, yeah. there's no thought process involved in that, um, and sort of figure out what kind of safeguards you need to put for yourself in order to change your habits that's work. That's a decision.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Okay. Anything else on this middle section of text?
2: I I don't think so.
1: And I am going to pick us up in verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. No longer present your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. This is that little, um, you know, I mentioned when we started that it was helpful to me to remember the, the broader context of having a, of, of Paul talking to Gentile followers of Jesus yes. or potential followers of Jesus and dealing with these questions of ritual observance or not and my uh study Bible has a note here that that we might have in our minds you know that uh question of circumcision reading some of this whether that's mm-hmm. yeah whether, whether that's sort of in the in the back of the author's mind so that's just an interesting thing to
0: Mm-hmm.
1: To think about. So this section makes it—it it seems like there's been a little bit of a shift to me, and now we're focusing on maybe temptations of the flesh. Is that mm-hmm. how you understand? Obey your passions?
2: Yeah, the, in the CEB, don't let sin rule your body so that you do what it wants.
1: Mm-hmm. hmm
2: I think I like the CEB there
1: better. Mm-hmm. Anyway— no, but yeah, I like the I like the CEB there too. And, um, and again, it, you know, earlier I was, I was trying to dig into the question of what are, what could we mean by death if we don't actually mean death? And one thing could be, you have a different relationship to your, yes to your body.
2: Yes. The problem I have with obey your passions is it makes this all sound like it's about sex.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> like yeah. I mean, passion. You can be passionate about all sorts of things.
1: Yeah. But we tend Hamburgers, to think I'm that's where our head about tends cheeseburgers. to go. <laughs> <laughs> I am so passionate
2: about cheeseburgers. Oh my goodness. <laughs> uh, so don't let sin rule your body. To me, helps you. Helps me.
1: Yes. Broaden
2: my scope. We talked about that passage earlier this year where Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, chop it off.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And one of the things that we talked about there, as I recall, was that your body engages in this world of the empire, in this world of sin and death in all sorts of ways. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's like the flicking on of the light switch, yeah. right? It's yeah. like we just habitually do things that have been given to us by the world, which in Paul's understanding is the world is ruled by sin and death. Those are our habits.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So we got to mm-hmm. put some tape on that light switch <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so our hands don't keep doing the habitual thing. And we got to move over and retrain them to mm-hmm. do these new kingdom sorts of things, which are not our natural proclivities.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So yeah, that probably does have to do with se- sexual ethics, but it also has to do with, like economics and the way we treat people. Yes.
1: Yes. No, I was, I was, when I reading this verse, I was like, to what extent are all the ways we get drawn into the ways of the empire ultimately about trying to create more and more pleasure and comfort for our bodies? Mm, And like, fine, yes, there's sex in there, but there's also like, God, gluttony for lack of a better word or like being able to see, really seek out wealth so that you have all the comfort and all the uh I don't know and like it is an open question for me like how much of our the human desire for like power and to feed our egos is tied into the comfort and well-being of our bodies I don't know the answer to that question but they definitely are they I think they're I think they're tied in more ways than I would necessarily yeah. have thought about.
2: Yeah, I think that's really insightful. So we have to retrain our bodies not to be so interested in our own comfort but seeking the well-being of mm. of others.
1: I love the way you said that Bobby because you didn't say ignore what your body wants. <laughs> You you know, like you're not saying I need to be, I need a bifurcation here in which I'm going to be a floating head and a soul that, you know, unfortunately is linked to a body. You're not asking for that, but you are saying put tape on the light switch until you get used to not doing that or, you know, whatever ways you have to retrain that the habits of the body to align with, uh, these habits of the spirit that you're trying to really take on.
2: Yeah. This is not here, but Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, I think it is, talks about that church community having meals together. Mm-hmm. And his problem with them is that the rich people arrive at the potluck and they bring all the good food and then they eat it all
1: mm-hmm. while
2: the poor people are still at work. Or they, you know, the poor people can't bring good food to the meal and so they don't get to eat very much. Paul's point is not you shouldn't enjoy food.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Paul's point is you should enjoy food as a community Mm -hmm. and share it with people Mm -hmm. who don't have enough food to enjoy Mm -hmm. so it's a reorienting of the passion it's it's not a your body no longer has needs Mm -hmm. but it's there are ways of satisfying those needs or meeting those needs that build community and Mm -hmm. there's ways that tear it down Mm -hmm. and we need to we need to retrain that way
1: it makes a lot of sense to me yeah Bobby, in, at the end of this, in verse 14, I'll, I think this is the first time that it mentions law in
2: mm-hmm.
1: in this passage we've read.
2: Yeah, as you were reading, I was like, man, I wish this just ended in verse
1: 13. Because that's such a nice place to end. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it just kind of pops it in there. And it and it makes me ask, like, what what is the connection that Paul imagines between sin and law? Mm-hmm. Like I can see how how one would say that grace is the better way to go because you can't mess it up, right? <laughs> Although, as you mentioned earlier, I think there is sometimes that you know it's it makes sense and is also incorrect for maybe Christian readers of the Bible to think that the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament is Judaism and. Right. It, it's really not like Judaism. It is it is the a, a foundational text of Judaism, which then continued to evolve and has an entire other body of literature. And, you know, so, okay, that, that's, that's just sort of an aside. Yeah. But if Paul imagines that there is not grace within that system of law, which is not true in modern Judaism, I don't know what was true then, but if that's what Paul is imagining, I can certainly see how you'd say grace is the better option because you can't mess it up. But this makes it sound that, like when you're trying to work within the legal system as your primary connection to God, that sin automatically has dominion over you. Mm -hmm. The question I wrote on my page, again, from before this conversation is, why would that be? And now I'm trying to think, like, okay, if you haven't gone through this whole process of sort of becoming dead to the world as as it is here on earth and adapting mm-hmm. this other way of life. I mean, is, is it, I guess here's a question. Is there something inherent about law that is problematic or really is what Paul is saying is the only way to avoid that whole system is to die to the whole system. And the only way you can do that is through Jesus.
2: I'm not sure Paul has exactly said all of that, but okay. well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Paul M- maybe he has
1: annotated by Amy.
2: Maybe he has said that uh here's the way I want to try to get at this, this yeah. is I, I had not anticipated getting at this this way so so forgive me when you read the Hebrew prophets one of their points is what the law does mm-hmm. is show people the right way to live
0: mm-hmm.
2: but what it really ends up doing is showing that people actually can't live that way mm-hmm. so you end up with Amos you end up with Micah you end up with Jeremiah. You end up with Ezekiel and they say, here's the Torah that God gave you, but you're not living that way.
0: Mm.
2: And so in in that way, what the law does is it reveals the sinfulness of humankind. That's one way that Paul also thinks about it. When you read Ezekiel, when you read Jeremiah, they both talk about a new covenant that's going to be put inside you I'm going to take out your heart of stone and give mm-hmm. or, and give you a heart of flesh heart of or wh- flesh, whatever that yeah. is. And so there is this sort of yearning for this kind of internalized mm-hmm. understanding of what the Torah is, that you can just live without having to go look at it. One way of reading Paul is that's all he's really saying, is that with Jesus, that has happened. So now grace is inside of you. You just understand the fruits of the spirit. Like when you live your life with love, gentleness, kindness, humility, like this is living out the law, but it's living out the internalized law that is God's grace. This is also the hope in the Hebrew prophets, you know, and I think, I think the argument would be that there were always some people who did live that way Mm -hmm. There were just also some people who did not live that way. Mm -hmm. And so this is kind of a way of saying the people who lived that way, the Jewish people who lived that way, lived that way because they had something in them. They had some sort of faithfulness, they had some sort of trust that they could muster that sort of following of the law. Mm -hmm. But there are always people also that were just sort of under the law who tried, I don't know, who tried to avoid it. I can't quite land that plane, but do you sort of see where I'm headed?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, there are, yeah, there are ways to live with the law that are uh, <laughs> focused on the wrong things and might make you feel like you you have everything under control if you can check all the boxes of following all these laws and all of that is a is a grand misunderstanding of what the whole message of the Torah was supposed to be, of which many of these laws are like case law. Like here are some examples of, <laughs> of how yeah. you should be how you should be doing this. And if you only keep those, then, you know, you've sort of you've sort of missed the point.
2: So there's a dispute about how one should read Paul with regard to the original covenant that God made with the Jews. I myself am in the camp that God remains yet faithful to the Jews through the original covenant with Abraham and Moses. And God has worked out a new covenant with Gentiles that doesn't require going through that direction in order to get to the same outcome, which is God's grace. Yeah. So for Gentiles, the law has no value because they already have experienced God's grace through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And they can live out of the Holy spirit, which is what has the way in which Mm -hmm. the law, the principles on which the law is based have been given to people through the spirit. I also think Paul thinks that there are, and have always been people who are Jewish and faithful to that covenant who trust in God's grace, like Abraham did Mm -hmm. And so then the Torah, the law, becomes a way of sort of expressing that covenantal relationship, but not acquiring it or ensuring it. They just Mm -hmm. trust. Mm -hmm. And then there are Jews who have not done that. Those are the Mm -hmm. people that Paul Mm -hmm. is very much concerned about. Mm -hmm. And so here what I think he's saying is that Gentiles' grace is received through Jesus, Jews— Justification is also received through God's grace. And so the law doesn't have a sort of primary function in either Mm -hmm. case, although faithful Jews might go to the law as a way of expressing their faithfulness, where Gentile Christians would not. Yeah. Did I just say the same thing over again?
1: No, I mean, I don't don't know, because it takes me a long time to be able to absorb these complex ideas. But I (laughs) think— Yeah, I got this image while you were talking of sort of, you know, the parent of many children who there are some some sort of ground rules that that exist for everybody, but then there also is, you know, you you have different relationships to your children and that you don't have to do everything the same with all of them, right, right, you know? Right. And you you said something earlier like that the laws, I don't remember you didn't use the word irrelevant. the The laws have no bearing; they have no relationship to this Gentile community because a Gentile community has grace, which I think you could say different differently. Just like the laws have no bearing to this Gentile community, because it's like it's like following the laws of another country to go back to your country example. Right. Like it's just mm-hmm. a set of laws, but they're not yours. So right, you know, like different. So, you know, the idea that God can have these different, you know, right. just what you're saying, these different covenants that have different ground rules and, and are all held by the same general ideas, but they're going to play out play out differently.
2: Right. Paul's uh, position, of course, is complicated by the fact that he's got dual citizenship, right, <laughs> in, that, yeah. in that metaphor. <laughs> yeah. he is both a Jew and also yeah. sort of a, a gospel, a missionary to the Gentiles. And so he's Yeah. straddling that line in a in, interesting way he's got to be bilingual
1: mm-hmm. oh bobby i am so curious to hear <laughs> what you might raise up from this text as sort of a essential teaching for our listeners this week
2: it's been so interesting to me reading this because i think of myself as not really a paul person <laughs> like i like i like me some gospels i love me some Jesus narratives, but actually this passage is, I think, at the very core of my own Christian identity, which has actually come as a bit of a surprise mm. to me, just to be perfectly frank about it. In my mind, there's two pieces here, one of which is a challenge and one of which is a comfort. And the, yeah, and mm. for me, they, they have to go together. The challenge is that we live in a world that does not have humankind's best interests at heart. And so when we look around the world, we are doing all sorts of damage to one another. Paul's invitation is for believers in Jesus, we're not meant to live in the world that way. We're meant to let that world be dead to us Mm -hmm. and find new ways to use our bodies, to use our commitments, to bring life and fullness and abundance to the the human community. And that requires every day waking up and deciding I'm not going to live in the mm-hmm. ways that the world is giving me.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I'm going to live in this other way. And it is a constant struggle to do that. And Paul is also saying that you believer who have been baptized have also been freed ultimately from the power of sin and death. And you trust that no matter how you make it work out on the day-to-day basis, when the messianic age arrives and there is the general resurrection, then you will be part of that resurrection. So if I wake up today and I score 60% on my living in the new life scorecard, that's okay. And. Yeah. Jesus has already defeated the power of sin and death and I get to participate in that. If I make it a 99% today, that's great too, but it's still the 1% is still sort of Jesus's work. And so the the demands are high, but the stakes are low.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: They are not ultimate stakes because Jesus has already made the made the decision about the ultimate outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so live the life. It's a struggle. You've got your addiction to the old world. You've got to make a decision every day not to live that way. But when you fall down, Mm -hmm. when you stumble, when you can't do it, it's okay. Mm -hmm. To me, that's very, I I like like the combination of comfort and challenge is difficult. Sometimes Christianity gets read the one way, like you've got to live Mm -hmm. your life perfectly in order to get into heaven and sometimes it's read the other way which mm-hmm. is jesus paid the price for you so it doesn't matter so what you're you done. do yeah. yeah and to me it's got it's in the middle there and that's uh that's the way it makes sense to me
1: i love that i really love that while well, you were talking about this sort of daily practice of like waking up and deciding today i'm going to live in you know the world of God and God's kingdom. And I'm not going to, you know, not going to live in the in the ways of the world around me. You're not going to live into my addiction or however you want to talk about it. I was just thinking like, that is hard work. It is hard work all day long. It is hard work mm. when you wake up in the morning and it's hard work when you have breakfast and it's hard work, you know, like it's, yes. it's there's, there are just so many things that tempt us in the world. And so I started thinking, I was listening to you, but I was also thinking, what what are what kinds of daily practices do I have or would I need to remind myself? Like, I would want to wake up and have a way of, like, setting my intention and reminding myself in my mind and in my body throughout the course of the day. And, and I guess, unsurprisingly, where I came back to was, like, this is precisely what Jewish daily practice does for me. Yes. Yes. That— when I wake up, I have prayers that I say because they are a reminder to me, look that way. Don't look the other way. You yes. know, this is how we're focused. And silly things like, I mean, I shouldn't say silly, but, you know, like my, the the extent to which I keep kosher rules, it's not because I think God's going to strike me down if I eat the wrong thing, but it is a reminder every time I have to decide what to eat Yes, that it's not just whatever the appetite of my belly is at that moment. Yes. And so again, like I think it, I think, I, yeah, like I think I think really regular practice is a way to remind our bodies and train ourselves to orient in a particular way. And of course, anything can be sapped of its meaning entirely. Like we're humans, we can mess up anything. Right. But uh, yeah, I, that was a, an interesting and unexpected convergence. In my mind, yeah. <laughs> you're yeah. offering your concluding thoughts.
2: And what you just said is what I think Paul is trying to say. He's just saying it to a He's just saying it to he's a, a,
1: different, to a audience. different audience,
2: yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm. That's, that, that, that took an interesting twist there. Thanks, Paul. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Paul. I love that guy. <laughs> yeah.
1: Bobby, next time is our last episode of the regular, like official narrative lectionary season.
2: It's true. We're going to be That's on the Pentecost crazy. text next
1: time. We are. Yes, Acts chapter two, Romans chapter eight. Uh, there'll be some fire and tongues, I think. And
2: there will be. It's yeah. going to be
1: great. It's going to be great. And then we'll we'll move on into our summer series after that. Sounds good. All right, my friend. Thanks for another interesting conversation. My very favorite worm.
2: (laughs) (laughs) All right, Amy. I'll see you next time.
1: See you next time. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, Visit patreon.com slash BibleWormPodcast for details.
2: Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Many, many thanks to all our Patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible.
1: Join us again next week as we finish this official season of the Narrative Lectionary with the Pentecost reading. We'll be in Acts Chapter 2 and Romans Chapter 8. Until then on vegan.